Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Warning. This podcast contains descriptions of murder, torture, and abuse. As a result, it may not be suitable for everybody. Newcastle upon time, England. One of the most iconic cities in Britain famous for its industrial heritage, Nuki Brown Ale, popular nightlife destination and distinctive Geordie accent. Listen to the hometown murder cases of Mary Bell, who was just 10 years old when she strangled to death two young boys, Mary Ann Cotton, who was hanged for murdering three of her four husbands for their insurance policies, and the one-armed bandit murder, the gangland killing of Angus Sibber. hometown murder cases we're looking at today is Mary Flora Bell. She was just 10 years old in 1968 when she strangled to death two young boys in Scotswood, a district in the west end of Newcastle upon time. She was convicted in December 1968 of the manslaughter of Martin Brown, age four, and Brian Howe, age three. Since her release from prison in the 1980s, she had lived under a series of different names. Her identity has been protected by court order, which has been extended to protect the identity of her daughter. In 1998, Bell collaborated with Gitta Cerny on an account of her life in which she details the abuse she suffered as a child at the hands of her prostitute mother and her clients. Bell's mother, Betty, was a prostitute who was often absent from the family home, travelling to Glasgow to work. Mary, who was nicknamed May, was her first child, born when Betty was 17 years of age. It is not known who Mary's biological father was. For most of her life, she believed it to be Billy Bell, a habitual criminal who was later arrested for armed robbery, but was already a baby when Bill married her mother. Independent accounts from the family members strongly suspect that Betty had more than once attempted to kill Mary and make her death look like accidental during her first few years of life. Her family was suspicious when Mary fell from a window and when she accidentally consumed sleeping pills. On one such occasion, an independent witness saw Betty giving the pills to her daughter as sweets. Mary herself says she was subjected to repeated sexual abuse 
her mother forcing her from the age of four to engage in sexual acts with men. After the fall, Mary experienced, it was reported she had suffered brain damage as a result, but now this damage is attributed to childhood abuse from her own mother. Mary had damage to her prefrontal cortex, an area associated with voluntary movements and decision making. On the 25th of May 1968, the day before her 11th birthday, May Bell strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in a derelict house. She believed to have committed this crime alone. Between then and her second killing, she and her friend Norma Joyce Bell, who was no relation, aged 13, broke into and vandalised the nursery in Scottswood, leaving notes that claimed responsibility for the killing. The police dismissed this incident as a prank. On the 31st of July 1968, the two girls took part in a strangulation of the death of the three-year-old Brian Howe on wasteland in the same Scotswood area. Police reports conclude that Mary Bell later returned to the body to carve an M for May or Mary into the boy's abdomen and used scissors to cut off some of his hair, scratch his legs and mutilate his genitals. On the 17th of December 1968 at Newcastle Assizes, Norma Bell was acquitted but Mary Bell was convicted of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The jury took their lead from her diagnosis by court-appointed psychiatrists who described her as displaying, quote, classic symptoms of psychopathy, end quote. The judge, Justice Cusack, described her as dangerous and said she possessed, quote, very grave risks to other children, end quote. She was sentenced to indefinite sentence of imprisonment she was initially sent to Red Bank Secure Unit in Newton Lee Willows, Lancashire, the same facility that would house John Venables, one of James Bolger's killers, 25 years later. James Bolger's murder is covered in the hometown murder episode from Liverpool, England. Please listen to that for further information. After her conviction, Bell was the focus of a great deal of attention from the British press and also from the German magazine Stern. Her mother repeatedly sold stories about her to the press and often gave reporters writings she claimed to be by her daughter. Bell herself made headlines in September 1977 when she was briefly escaped from the Moor Court Open Prison where she'd been held since her transfer from a young offender's institution to an adult prison a year earlier. Her penalty for this was a loss of prison privileges for 28 days. For a time, Bell also lived in a girl's remand home at Cumberlow Lodge in South Norwood. In 1980, 23-year-old Bell was released from Ashcan Grange Open Prison after serving 12 years and was granted anonymity, including a new name, allowing her to start a new life. Bell allegedly came back to Tyneside on several occasions and lived there for some time after her release. Four years after finishing her sentence, she had a daughter on the 25th of May 1984. The girl knew nothing of her mother's past until reporters discovered Belle's location in 1998 and the pair had to leave their home with bedsheets over their heads. Belle's daughter's anonymity was originally protected only until she reached the age of 18. 
However, on the 21st of May 2003, Bell won a high court battle to have her own anonymity and that of her daughter extended for life. Consequently, any court order permanently protecting the identity of a convict in Britain is sometimes known as the Mary Bell Order. The orders were later updated to include Bell's granddaughter, born in January 2009, who was also referred to as Zed. Bell's current whereabouts is also unknown. The second hometown murder case we're looking at today is Mary Ann Cotton. She was born Mary Ann Robson, the 31st of October, 1832. She was a serial killer, convicted and hanged for the murder by poisoning of her stepson, Charles Edward Cotton. It's likely she murdered three of her four husbands, apparently in order to collect their insurance policies and many others. She may have murdered as many as 21 people, including 11 of her 13 children. She chiefly used arsenic poisoning, causing gastric pain and rapid decline of health. Mary Ann Robson was born on the 31st of October 1832 at Low Morsley, now part of Heatonleam Hole, in the wider Hortonleigh Spring, part of the city of Sunderland. She was born to Michael Robson, Acolia Sinker and Margaret Nee Longsdale and baptised at St Mary's West Rainton on the 11th of November. Her sister Margaret was born in 1834 but only lived for a few months. Her brother Robert was born in 1835. Mary Ann was just eight when her parents moved the family to County Durham, village of Merton. At the time of her trial, the Northern Echo published an article containing the description of Mary Ann as given by her childhood Wesleyan Sunday School Superintendent at Merton, describing her as, quote, a most exemplary and regular attender, a girl of innocent disposition and average intelligence, distinguished for a particularly clean and tidy appearance, end quote. Soon after the move, Mary Ann's father fell 150 feet to his death down a mine shaft at Merton Connery in February 1842. Her father's body was delivered to her mother in a sack bearing a stamp property of the South Heaton Coal Company. As the miners' cottage they inhabited was tied to Michael's job, the widow and children would have been evicted. In 1843, her mother married George Scott. He was also a minor. At the age of 16, Mary Ann left home to become a nurse at the nearby village of South Heaton, in the home of Edward Potter, a manager of Merton Colliery. After all that the children had been sent to boarding school in Darlington over the next three years, she returned to her stepfather's home and trained as a dressmaker. In 1852, at the age of 20, Mary Ann married Collier labourer William Mowbray at Newcastle-upon-Tyne Registry Office and they soon moved to south-west England. At the time of her trial, there were reports of four or five of their children dying while young, while they were living away from County Durham. None of these deaths were registered as although registration was compulsory at the time, the law was not enforced until 1874. 
The only birth recorded was that of her daughter, Margaret Jane, born at St. Germans in 1856. William and Mary Ann moved back to North East England, where William worked as a fireman aboard a steam vessel sailing out of Sunderland, then as a colliery foreman. Another daughter, Isabella, was born in 1858 and Margaret died in 1860. Another daughter, also named Margaret Jane, was born in 1861 and lastly a son, John Robert William, was born in 1863. He died a year later from gastric fever. William died of intestinal disorder in January 1865. The lives of William and their children was insured by the British and Prudential Insurance Office and Mary Ann collected a payment of £35 on William's death, equivalent to around £3,371, about half a year's wage for a manual labourer at the time, and £2.05 shillings for John Robert William. Soon after Mowbray's death, Mary Ann moved to Seaham Harbour, County Durham, where she struck up a relationship with Joseph Natras. During this time, her three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Margaret Jane, died of typhus fever, leaving her with one child of up to nine she had born. She returned to Sunderland and took up employment at Sunderland Infirmary. House of Recovery for the Cure of Contagious Fever, Dispensary and Humane Society. She sent her surviving child, Isabella, to, to live with her mother. One of the patients at the infirmary was engineer George Ward. They married at St Peter's Church, Monk Wearmouth, on the 20th of August, 1865. Ward continued to suffer ill health and died on the 20th of October, 1865, after a long illness categorised by paralysis and intestinal problems. The cause of death recorded on his death certificate is that of English cholera and typhoid. The attending doctor later gave evidence that Ward had been very ill, yet he'd been surprised that his death was so sudden. Once again, Mary Ann collected insurance money in respect to her husband's death. James Robertson, her third husband, was a shipwright at Pillion in Sunderland. His wife, Hannah, had recently died. He hired Marianne as a housekeeper in November 1866. A month later, James Boy John died of gastric fever. He returned to his housekeeper for comfort and she became pregnant. Then Marianne's mother, living in Seaham Harbour, County Durham, became ill with hepatitis, so she immediately went to her. Although her mother began to recover, she also began to complain of stomach pains. She died at the age of 54 in the spring of 1867, nine days after Marianne's arrival. In 1867, Marianne's stepfather, George Stott, married his widowed neighbour, Hannah Parley. Marianne's daughter, Isabella, from the marriage to William Mowbray, was brought back to the Robinson household and soon developed severe pains and died as did two of Robinson's children. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Elizabeth and James. All three children were buried in the last week of April and the first week of May in 1867. Mary received a life insurance payment of £5.10 shillings, six pence for Isabella. Robinson married Mary Ann at St Michael's Bishop Weir Mouth on the 11th of August 1867. Their first daughter, Margaret Isabella, Mary Isabella on her baptismal record was born that November but she became ill and died in February 1868. Their second child George was born on 18th of June 1869. Robinson meanwhile had become suspicious of his wife's insistence that he ensure his life. He discovered that she ran up debts of £60 behind his back and had stolen more than £50 that he expected her to bank. Then he found that Mary Ann had been forcing his older children to pawn household valuables. He threw her out, retaining custody of their son George. Mary Ann was desperate and living on the streets. Then her friend Margaret Cotton introduced her to her brother Frederick, a pitman and recent widower living in Warbottle, Northumberland. He had lost two of his four children. Margaret had acted as a substitute mother for the remaining children, Frederick Jr. and Charles, but in late March 1870, she died from an undetermined stomach ailment, leaving Marianne to console the grieving Frederick Sr. Soon her 12th pregnancy was underway. Cotton and Marianne was bigamously married on the 7th of September 1870 at St Andrews, Newcastle upon Tyne. Their son, Robert, was born in 1871. Soon Mary Ann learnt that her former lover, Joseph Natras, was living 30 miles away in County Durham in West Auckland and was no longer married. She rekindled the romance and persuaded her new family to move near him. Cotton died in December of that year from gastric fever. Insurance had been affected on his life and those of his sons. After Frederick's death, Natras soon became Marianne's lodger. She gained employment as a nurse to an excise officer recovering from smallpox. Popular culture sources have called him John Quick Manning, though there appears to be no trace of a John Quick Manning in the records of West Auckland Brewery or the National Archives. The census records, birth and death and marriages records all show no trace of him. Richard Quickman was a custom and excised man specialising in breweries and he'd been found in the records. This be, may be the real name of Mary Ann Cotton's lover. Soon Mary became pregnant by him with her 15th child. Frederick Jr. died in March 1872 and the infant Robert soon after. Then Ned Trass soon became ill with gastric fever and died just after visits revising his will in Mary Ann's favour. The insurance policy Marianne had taken out on the still-living Charles' life still waited collection. 
Mary Ann's downfall came when she asked by parish official Thomas Riley to help nurse a woman who was ill with smallpox. She complained that the last surviving cotton boy Charles Edwards was in the way and asked Riley if he could be committed to the workhouse. Riley, who also served as West Auckland's assistant coroner, said that she would have to accompany him. He told Riley that the boy was sickly and added, quote, I wouldn't be troubled long, he'd go like all the rest of the cottons, end quote. Five days later, Mary Ann told Riley that the boy had died. Riley went to the village police and convinced the doctor to delay writing a death certificate until the circumstances could be investigated. Mary Ann's first visit after Charles' death was not the doctor, but the insurance office. There she discovered that no money would be paid out until a death certificate was issued. An inquest was held and a jury turned a victim in natural causes. Mary Ann claimed to have used arrowroot to relieve his illness and said Riley had made accusations against her because she had rejected his advances. Then the local papers latched onto the story and discovered Mary Hannah had moved around Northern England and lost three husbands, a lover, a friend, her mother and 11 children, all of whom have died of stomach fevers. Rumour gave rise to suspicion and scientific investigation. Dr William Byers Kilburn, who attended Charles, had kept samples and tests showed they contained arsenic. He told the police who arrested Marianne and procured exhumation of Charles' body. She was charged with his murder, although the trial was delayed until after the delivery in Durham Gull on the 10th of January 1873 of a 13th and final child, whom she called Margaret Edith Quick Manning Cotton. Cotton's trial began on the 15th of May 1873. The delay was caused by a problem in the selection of prosecution counsel. Mr Aspinall was first considered, but Attorney General Sir John Duke Coleridge, whose decision it was, chose his friend and protégé Charles Russell. Russell's appointment over Aspinall led to a question in the House of Commons. However, it was accepted and Russell conducted the prosecution. The Cotton case was the first of several famous poisoning cases he would be involved in during his career, including of those of Adadale Bartlett and Floris Maybrick. The defence in the case was handled by Mr Thomas Campbell Foster, who argued during the trial that Giles had died from inhaling arsenic used as a dye in green wallpaper at the Cotton House. The doctor testified that in the communist shop there was no other powder only liquid on the same shelf as the arsenic. The chemist himself, however, claimed there were other powders. Campbell Forrest argued that it was possible that the chemist had mistaken the arsenic powder for bismuth powder used to treat diarrhoea when preparing a bottle for cotton because he'd been distracted by talking to other people. The jury retired for 90 minutes before returning a guilty verdict. The Times correspondent reported on the 20th of March, quote, After conviction, the wretched woman exhibited strong emotion, but this gave place in a few hours to a habitual cold, reserved demeanour. And while she harbours a strong conviction that the royal clemency will be extended towards her, she staunchly asserts her innocence of the crimes that have been convicted of, end quote. 
Several petitions were presented to the Home Secretary, but by no avail. Mary Ann Cotton was hanged at Durham County Cole on the 24th of March 1873 by William Carlcraft. She died not by her neck breaking, but by strangulation caused by the rope being rigged too short, possibly deliberately. Of Mary Ann's 13 children, only two survived her, Margaret Edith and her son George from a marriage to James Robinson. The last murder case we're looking at today is the one-armed bandit murder. The one-armed bandit murder was a criminal case in the northeast of England, Newcastle upon Tyne. The case involved a murder of Angus Sibber in 1967. The trial resulted in life sentences for Dennis Stafford and Michael Levgaglio. Both men were released on license 12 years later. The case gained the nickname in the press as the one-armed bandit murder through the connection to the gambling industry involving the supply of fruit machines, the fruit machines known colloquially as one-armed bandits, to social clubs. The case was one of the most notorious killings in the North East and the first gangland killing sparking fears that organised crime was gaining a foothold in the North East. Levigalio's Italian surname sparked the headline, The Mafia Are Coming. The trial was one of the biggest seen in the North East. Both men have always insisted on their innocence, with Stafford alleging the murder was committed by a Scottish gangster, and Levigalio alleging it was part of a failed attempt by the craze to enter the Newcastle club scene. The pair have claimed that the hype around the case and the upsurge in gangland activity caused the police to suppress evidence in order to gain a conviction. Lovegalio says that he was charged as Stafford's companion because in his initial questioning he refused to say that Stafford had left him on the night of the murder. Had Lovegalio made this statement it was likely only Stafford would have been charged and convicted. Organised crime was on the rise in England during the 1960s with the most notable, notable events being the gangland wars between the Craze and the Richardson gang. Sibbitt was a money collector for a company run by Loviaglio's brother which supplied working men's clubs with fruit machines. The company supplied the entire North East representative lucrative business for underworld gangs. Sibbitt Lavaglio and Stafford were all friends and business associates. Lavaglio was a Londoner with Italian roots who had moved from London to Newcastle to work in his brother's business. Stafford, also from London, was a self-confessed playboy and career criminal, whereas Lavaglio was less involved in crime and was not inclined to violence. Lavaglio asserted that Sibbert was a very good friend of his, even his best friend or like a brother. On the night of the 4th of January 1967, Lavaglio and Stafford were to meet Sibbett at the Burge Cage Club in Newcastle at 12.30am, 16 miles away from the eventual scene of the discovery of Sibbett's body. His body was discovered by the, the following morning at 15.15am by a miner in the back seat of his Jaguar having been shot three times. The car was under Pestpool Bridge in South Heaton, County Durham. The trial took place at Newcastle Crown Court two months later. 
As motive for his murder, the prosecution alleged Sibbert had been skimming the takings, estimated at around £1,000 a week, supported by the fact he could afford to buy a Jaguar Mark 10. Stafford and Le Vigalio were found guilty and were sentenced to life in prison. The pair was eventually released in 1979, freed on license after 12 years, after two failed appeals in prison. The main doubt about the original trial surrounded the asserted time of death, proving what was key as the pair had alibis for all but a 15 minute window on the night and the time of death had been estimated as the body was only discovered at 5am. The time was at least five hours prior, according to police. Witnesses were reported to have seen Sibbert alive in the car after the time of death or nobody in the car. Doubts were also expressed over the lack of any forensic evidence linking the pair to the scene the actual presence of conflicting forensic evidence and over the reliance of contradictory withheld evidence. In 2005, it was asserted Stafford's legal team that a murder conviction on the evidence would not have been possible in modern times and the case was taken to the Criminal Cases Review Commission which opened a review in the case in 2005. This later failed as it did an appeal in the House of Lords. Stafford was re-imprisoned for two years in 1889 after breaking his licence by leaving the country, in the meantime setting up business in South Africa. He was arrested after re-entering the country and being caught in a security check at a hotel where Mikhail Gorbachev was staying. Both Stafford and Levgalio had been fighting their cases on a separate basis, not speaking to each other since their original release. This was down to separate backgrounds of the two men and not due to any falling out. A reunion was held 30 years in March 2008 where they earmarked a judicial review at the court. This failed leaving the only recourse an appeal to Europe. Stafford was later in prison for forging travellers cheques in 1994. Then Home Secretary Michael Howard kept him in jail ruling a pro board recommendation. This decision was later challenged in a landmark ruling at the European Court of Human Rights and in May 2002 the court ruled that the Home Secretaries had no power to overrule the Parole Board's decision and awarded damages. Thank you for everybody who's listened to this episode. This episode has been researched, written and hosted by me, Andrew Knight. Sound, music and editing has been provided by Harry Edmondson. Make sure you subscribe to the show anywhere where you listen to your podcast. This allows the episode to be downloaded automatically as soon as it's released. Please reach out to us on the social media. We're at Hometown Murders on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Please support the show by leaving a five-star rating or a review. It really does help. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.